0: 2 Samuel chapter 16 for our study tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. While you're standing, let's welcome the Holy Spirit here. Father, we thank you for your presence. We want to encounter you tonight. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into truth. Our lives are busy. Our lives are full. We need to hear your voice. We recognize that your word is living and active. and We open up our hearts to it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. David's own son, Absalom, is betraying him to the point where he's committing treason to take the throne. David is outnumbered. Absalom has the upper hand. David is fleeing from Jerusalem. That's where we pick up the story. David's life is in the midst of crisis. I don't believe David expected at this point, after being king for so long that he would be once again on the run. Oftentimes our lives get to a place of crisis as well. And as we look at this section of scripture, I hope that we would be encouraged with these life lessons because I think some of the things David faces we're going to face as well as we go through hard times. When David was a little past the top of the mountain there was Ziba the servant of Mephibosheth who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys. And on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Ziba was a servant of Saul from the house of Benjamin. He was assigned to take care of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. David chose to show him kindness and said, I want you Ziba to take care of all the property that's given to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth fell as a young child, was crippled. So now Ziba comes, and he's bringing all of this goods that David would desperately need. And the king said to Ziba, "'What do you mean with these?' So Ziba said, "'The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, "'the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, "'and the wine for those who are faint "'in the wilderness to drink.'" Then the king said, And where is your master's son? Where is Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. Ziba's lying. As we'll find as we continue to go through Second Samuel, Mephibosheth was the one who sent Ziba. He knew David was in trouble. And he says, I can't go, but you can go. And so here's all the things I want you to take. But Ziba sees an opportunity to betray Mephibosheth. Oftentimes, there's people in this world that see crisis as an opportunity to take advantage of someone. Isn't that true? As I've had the opportunity to travel some and do some international missions and even in our own community, do you know those who are the most vulnerable are the ones who their lives are in the greatest crisis? You go to Uganda and the children that don't have dads in their lives, there's a whole line of people that are ready to, to victimize them. Kids in our own community that are at the greatest risk are the ones that don't have people actively engaged in their life. They tell us in our own community, if a teenager runs away, that with, within the first 24 hours, if they're in downtown Colorado Springs, they're going to be approached by someone who's going to try to get them into human trafficking, get them into drugs, all of those types of things. They spot a kid like that. They see a crisis, and they go, there's, there's an opportunity. And that's Zeba. He sees a crisis, and he says, I'm going to seize the opportunity. Church, we don't want to be like that. That's shameful, isn't it? When we see crisis, we should respond to be helpful, to build somebody's life up, to bring the love of Jesus Christ to them. But there will always be people like Zeba in the midst of crisis. So the king said to Ziba, Here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. David, he believes Ziba. He thinks, Well, it makes sense that Mephibosheth would not be with me because he's from Jonathan. He wants to see the kingdom restored back unto the household of Saul. Here's the first thing I want you to write down tonight, and it's this. Resist rash decisions. If your life is in the midst of crisis, resist rash decisions. When our life gets turned upside down like David, a lot of times our clarity of thinking is low, but our emotion is extremely high. Isn't that true? David's at that place. He doesn't have all of the information. In fact, the information that he does have is wrong. He's assuming that Ziba is telling him the truth. This reminds me a lot of Joshua with the Gibeonites in chapter 9. The Gibeonites were from the land of Canaan, who Israel was to wipe out. Joshua doesn't seek the Lord. He doesn't take time. He doesn't wait. He makes a quick decision, and he was deceived. When we make decisions, a lot of times in crisis, we get it wrong. So this could be for you tonight. Your life is in a bit of a crisis. Maybe it is because of a relational betrayal. Maybe it is because of a of a loss of a job. And the tendency is I'm losing control. So I've I've got to make a decision here. And you don't want to make the wrong decision. Maybe your boyfriend or your girlfriend just broke up with you and your your heart is completely broken, so you're gonna run into the arms of the first person that you meet. That's a rash decision. If you've just lost your job and so all of a sudden I've got to put my house on the market and Move in with this person, well, not necessarily. God has a lot of options that we haven't even considered before. Have you made rash decisions in your life? I've made rash decisions in my life when I'm not even in a place of crisis. Probably my worst rash decision was when I finished Bible college and finished school ministry. Those three years of preparation. My pastor that I had growing up, a family friend, grew up with his kids. He comes to me the last day of school ministry, and he says, Eric, and he has this big, booming voice. He's just this giant of a man. He says, Eric, I've got an opportunity for you. We'd like you to go to Vanuatu, South Pacific, to teach the Bible for, for a year. I thought, hmm, let me pray about this. So I literally, this is a true story. I prayed for two hours. I talked to nobody. I didn't talk to my parents, my brother, my sister, my friends that I'd gone through school ministry with, and i go back to my pastor, and I said, I'm in. This is a great opportunity. I would love to go to Vanuatu, South Pacific, teach the Bible. They speak English there, and, and my pastor thought it was a good idea. That was a very rash decision, because as I got into that decision, I realized I don't have a heart for missions, <laughs> That's a, that's a pretty good reason why not to go to Vanuatu, you know. I had prepared all through Bible college and school ministry because my heart was broken for this country. I knew God was calling me to this country. And, and I threw all of that off, out the window because I thought that this was a good opportunity. Not that there's anything wrong with international missions. I love the opportunity to get involved in some of those, those things, but it is not me. It is not what God had called me to even at at a young age. But because someone that I respected presented it to me, I was in lock, stock, and barrel. I began to read Jim Elliott's writings. Some of you may know his story as he prepared for missions. And his heart was gripped by God for missions. And that's where it really convicted me. I shouldn't go because I don't have that heart. That's not what God has called me to. And it made my life extremely messy at that point because then I had to own up to that decision, and I let people down. By the time I decided not to go, it was way too late, and the dominoes began, began to fall, and I didn't, didn't end up uh, going to, to Vanuatu. It was a rash decision. So what do you do instead of making a rash decision? You wait. You realize I'm in a season of crisis. I'm going to wait to hear God's voice. I'm gonna to wait to have God speak to me through the word of God. When David does this, he can't fully undo it. As we'll continue to study in Second Samuel, he gives half of the land to Ziba. This dirty snake gets half of the land because David made a rash decision. We go on in verse 5. Now when King David came to Barum, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah, coming out from there. He came out, cursing continuously as he came. So can you picture David? It's like, oh, a little bit of refreshment, some summer fruits. Now I'm riding on a donkey. And then here comes this man who's from the house of Saul, house of Benjamin, who was the prior king, and he's just cursing at David. He's he's upset. Sorry, this is how my mind works. This is in Hebrew that he'd be cursing, and I'm wondering, what do the curse words sound like in Hebrew, you know? (laughs) I mean, someone could be cussing me out in Hebrew and I have no idea, right? I have no no comprehension of what they're saying. He's just letting it go. He's not holding back. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of the king of David and the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also, Shimei said, thus, when he cursed, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you're a bloodthirsty man. I think i had been holding on to something for a while, don't you? This is what I've experienced and this is what I've, I've observed. In the midst of crisis, you will find a lot of people that will line up to curse you. You will find a lot of people that will line up to criticize you. I don't know what it is, but when life is going good and there's not a lot of trials, people tend to assume that you are doing well, that you're making good choices, that you're right with the Lord. But as soon as the wheels come off of your life, there's going to be people that will assume that you've rebelled against God that there has to be something wrong in your walk with God, and so they're gonna criticize you. Or maybe things that they wanted to say when things were going well, but didn't feel like that they could, but now that you're at a weak moment, they're gonna let you have it. We find that in Job's life, don't we? His friends, his friends, his dearest companions. A whole book is devoted to their criticism. And when do they do it? They do it when Job is at his darkest hour. I've had close friends lose children and go through things that are absolutely horrific, and then you just hear all of this criticism that people have of them of how they're responding to the loss of their child. I'm going, come on, have you ever lost a child? Like This isn't even fair. This isn't even right for, for you to be able to do this, but this is gonna happen. You, you can count on it. Not, not all will be like this. You will find some loyal friends You'll find some people that will stick through those hard times with you, but you'll also find the Shimei that will love to bring that kind of criticism. In verse 9, Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. (laughs) Now Abishai, we know a bit about this man. He's Joab's brother. He's killed Abner. He was with David in 1 Samuel 26 when David went into the camp of Saul. This man's a warrior. There is no doubt that Abishai can lop his head off. Now this is one way to deal with criticism, isn't it? Hey, I'm already going through a hard time. My son has betrayed me. There's gotta be something inside of David that's saying, go for it. Go for it. Just take his head off. Criticism is difficult. It's really difficult when your life is in shambles. It's also difficult when things are going well. So here's the second thing to consider, is respond to criticism humbly. Let's look at how David responds. I think it's phenomenal. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? Did you catch that? David is believing, implying, that the Lord could have possibly sent Shimei to curse him. That God was wanting to use this criticism in David's life. That takes an incredible amount of humility. This is cursing. This is not even what we would consider constructive criticism, right? He's not sandwiching this in, going, I'm going to start with a compliment, and then I'm going to bring the complaint, and then I'll end with another compliment, and then maybe they'll receive it, right? There's none of that. This guy's just out of control, angry, bitter, cursing. And David's like, maybe this is exactly what God had for me today. It causes us to be confronted with what we think the will of God might be for our lives. A lot of times, I don't think that it's God's will that he would bring somebody to criticize me, bring someone to curse me. I think it's God's will to provide for me. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? For God to bring deliverance, for God to bring healing. But what what is God's agenda? What's his mission for our lives to make us more Christ-like? There may be nothing more that will grow us up than criticism and someone getting in our face and cursing us. If we want to know where our pride level's at, just how do we respond to criticism? Do we have a mindset that, okay, God God could be allowing criticism. He could be ordaining criticism in my life to teach me and to show me and to cause me to grow, even if the criticism's not true. It's giving me an opportunity to respond. David responds in humility, and we see in his response, humility all the way through. And David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, see how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite, Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. Let him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has ordered him. In order to receive criticism, receive someone losing it on us, we have to come to terms with the fact that in us dwells no good thing. David's like, my own son is trying to kill me. My own son is committing treason against me. It only makes sense that the descendant of Saul would be after me as well. If I really believed that there was no good thing in me, I wouldn't be offended if someone lost their temper at me. I wouldn't be offended if someone criticized me. But that's not often the case. Someone begins to criticize. They don't do it in a constructive way. There's no relationship. They haven't shown that they're a consistent person in our lives. Man, there's no room to receive that. There's no, no room to be, be open to that. But David's walking around with this mindset of he's, he's, he knows his own shortcomings. And deep down, we do as well. And if we're aware of them... We're honest with God and honest with ourselves. Then when our spouse says, hey, do you have a minute? We're like, yeah, I got I got 10 minutes. I want to hear what you have to say. You know, we, we make somebody mad at the, we're out at the grocery store. We're on the road, we cut somebody off. Okay, I want to stop and hear this for a sec. I, I realize that my life is, Full of sin. My life's full of shortcomings, so there's room for someone to be able to bring criticism. In verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay with good for his cursing this day. David realizes that God is present. Church, David realizes that God's present. He's saying, God will work this out. And even though Shimei is cursing me and criticizing me, God may reward me for the fact that I didn't lose it on Shimei. I didn't lop his head off. One of the things I really admire and I'm challenged by David is how he responded to Saul. He didn't take things into his own hands and how he responded to Shimei. I've mentioned it prior in this study. There's a book called The Tale of Three Kings and it describes the life of David. It's by Gene Edwards and this is a quote from that book. It says, the throne is not mine Not to have, not to take, not to protect, and not to keep. That was David's perspective of the throne. A lot of times when people have power, it corrupts them. David's been king for some time. He struggled. We've seen him walk in adultery. But David's not holding on to the throne like this. This is mine. This is my power. No one can take this away from me. Lord of the Rings fans, Who does it remind you of? Schmeagel, when he's got the ring. It's mine, right? I gotta have it. If you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, you've just found a great activity for a Saturday night, right? And a lot of times, our inability to receive criticism goes back to a perspective of selfishness. There's a reputation that we have to guard. There's power that we have to, to hold on to. In Romans chapter 12, verse 17, it says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of men. If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Give it over to God. Allow God to be present in the situation. Verse 13, and David and his men went along the road. Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and kicked up dust. You following this? They're on the road. David's got his mighty men. And Shimei is so bold, he gets the high ground and he's just kicking down dirt, throwing stones, cursing, calling David every name in the book. And what does David do? He just keeps going. He just keeps going. Doesn't take things into his own hands. The best way to get through criticism is to keep going. Put one foot in front of another. Keep going in the direction that God has called you. Time is on the side of integrity. Walk in integrity. Walk with the Lord. Be consistent. Nehemiah was criticized as well as he built the wall around the temple. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't try to silence the critics. He kept building a wall. Just keep going forward. You got someone in your family that's upset at you, that's criticizing you. You've got someone in your workplace, in your neighborhood. Look for that shred of truth. Look for that massive amount of truth if that happens to be there. That's what David's doing. Receive it humbly and then keep going. Don't let it paralyze you. Don't let it stop you. In verse 14, "Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed the, themselves there. Criticism makes you really weary, doesn't it? Maybe you're completely exhausted tonight because of criticism. Maybe you own your own business, and you're working for your customers, and you're working hard, but everything you do, all they do is criticize. Maybe you're in a marriage and the atmosphere is one of criticism. Your perspective is, no matter what you do, you, you get criticized. Maybe that's your boss. You're like, I'm so glad it's Saturday, but Monday's coming. And you can't help but think about Monday. And you're like, oh, I've got this boss that's so critical. It gives me so much criticism. And you're wore out. And what we find here is that this group of men, they got wore out as well by Shimei, And so they stopped and they refreshed themselves. How do we get refreshed in the midst of criticism? We go to the one who understands Jesus. Jesus was criticized. Every step of the way, his life was ridiculed. Here's Christ's invitation He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. He has the living water. Let's get practical a little bit. How do you respond? How do I respond at receiving criticism? If you're not sure, ask your spouse. If you're not married, ask a close friend. I don't think this is easy for anyone. I should think this shows that David has walked with the Lord, and because of that, there's a humility that comes. Even if it's given in the wrong way, even if it's given by an enemy, but even more so if it's given by someone who loves you and cares for you, who's walked life with you, say, I need to hear this. I need to receive this. I need to respond in a humble way. Verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. You guys remember Ahithophel? He was David's counselor, and he went with Absalom. And so it was when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Hushai is David's secret service. He sends in Hushai to try to confront the council of Ahithophel. So Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? So so Hushai, why aren't you staying with David? And Hushai said to Absalom, "No, but whom, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, His I will be, and with Him I will remain." So he's saying, if if God's with you, Absalom, and the people are with you, I'm with you as well. Remember, he's just trying to get Absalom's trust to save David's life. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son, as I have served in your father's presence? So I'll be in your presence. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as what we should do. So now he turns back to Ahithophel. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he's left to keep the house, and all of Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong." So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house and Absalom went to his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Ahithophel wants David to be ragingly angry at Absalom to build the cause of David. So this is his advice. There's 10 concubines that were left to take care of the house. Go ahead and put a tent at the top of the house so that all of Israel knows that you're having sexual relation with your dad's concubines. Now, I want you to turn back with me in your Bible to chapter 12 and look at verse 10. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. I want you to think deep with me for just a moment in the midst of crisis, remember God's word. And you're saying, well, I don't understand this. Because a lot of times in the midst of crisis, I'm remembering God's word in the sense of who God is and the things that he's promised to do. But we've got to stop and look at David's life here and realize that this crisis is created by David's own sin. This is happening just the way that God said it would. David, you're going to have adversity in your house. The sword's gonna come from your own home. Your wives are gonna be taken from you. You did this sexual sin in private, but this sexual sin is gonna be done openly. Remember God's word. There's times in our lives that the crisis is created by our own sin. Absalom's responsible for his sin. It's not that because God knew that this was gonna happen and this was a consequence for David's sin, that it releases Absalom of his own responsibility. But it's very clear from chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, that God's word is fulfilled. This is a fulfillment very specifically of God's word. Now, let's dissect this because, so does this mean all crisis in our life is because of our sin? No. God says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Your car breaks whether you're walking with God or not. It happens. And in fact, sometimes when you're walking with God, you're going to go through hard times because you're walking in a righteous way. That's Job. Satan wanted to test Job because he was a righteous man. There was no one like him that was walking with the Lord. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So not all bad times or crisis is because of sin. I hope you really hear that and you really understand that. But also sometimes crisis is a result of our sin. And we're not going to be able to navigate it effectively if we don't stop and realize and go, I'm reaping what I've sown. David understood that he was reaping what he had sown. And I believe that's why he was able to respond in humility. That's why he was able to walk through this criticism in such humility because he knew his own sin. He had remembered the word of God in the midst of crisis, remember the word of God. Examine, is it my own sin that has contributed to this? Now, I want to push through this into chapter 17, because I really want you to see this in, in the next few moments. So this is verse 23 of chapter 16. Now, the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Not that God approves of what Ahithophel has just described, but it is showing that his advice is effective. So now we go into chapter 17. We're going to read down to verse 14 and make an application. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David's tonight." So this is Ahithophel's advice. I will come upon him while he's weary and weak and make him afraid. And all of the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you when all return except the man whom you seek. All the people will be at peace, and the saying pleased Absalom and the elders of Israel. He's saying, "Look, I'll take out David, and I'll bring back everybody else to you in peace. Let's go get David right now while he's weak. Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai, David's secret service man, the archite, and let us hear what he has to say too. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. So Hushai said to Absalom, The advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, you know your father and his men that they are mighty men and they are enraged in their minds like a bear robbed of their cubs in the field. And your father's a man of war and will not camp with the people. Don't go after him right now. He's mad, he's angry, he's a man of war. Surely by now he's hidden in some pit or in some other place. And it will be when some of them are overthrown at first that whoever hears of it will say, There is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. So if you have an initial defeat, everyone will be discouraged. For all of Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Therefore, I advise that all of Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba. If you look at a map of Israel, Dan is the very north, Beersheba is the very south. It's like saying from Montana to New Mexico. We're going to gather everybody from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for the multitude that you go to battle in person. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall not be left so much as one." Moreover, if he is withdrawn into a city, then all of Israel shall bring ropes to that city and we will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. Pretty convincing argument by Hushai. So Absalom and all of the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the, than the advice of Ahithophel. This is what I want you to focus on. All that reading to get right here. For the Lord had purpose to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel, to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. In the midst of crisis, even if you realize you have contributed to it by your own sin and poor choices, the last thing to write down and meditate upon tonight is this: is rely on God's sovereignty. Rely on God's sovereignty. God said. David, you've set this in motion. Here's the consequences, but the line for the consequences is here. This is where the consequences stop. You have adversity in your own home. This is going to happen to your your own wives, but David, you're going to continue to be king. God could have removed the throne from David because of what he had done. Agreed? God could have even killed David. That would have been just. That's in the law. Agreed? But God didn't say that. He said, here's the consequence, and here's the line. So God in his sovereignty, which is his power, his control, is on the throne in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this crisis, and David's relying upon that. He's saying, if God wants me to come back to Jerusalem, I will. And here we find God intervening, and he's going to use the advice of Hushai to save David's life. Do you see it's not difficult for God to save David in this situation? He used one man to turn this whole event around, even though Absalom has the majority. It brings us to this theme in scripture. These are some important verses. Psalms 115 verse three says, but our God's in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Isn't that a great verse? He does what he wants. Isaiah 40 verse 15 says, behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as small as the dust on the scales. Just a drop in the bucket. The nations are just a drop in the bucket. Another verse from Psalms, "God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. He's reigning over the situation of Absalom and David. Proverbs 21 verse one says, "The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of the water, he turns it wherever he pleases. Who's in control? Is it the Democrats or is it the Republicans? Or is it the independents? You know who's in control? God's in control. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the crisis, he's going to do whatever he pleases. Does that mean we don't get involved? Does that mean we don't vote? Absolutely not. But we need to remember whether it's looking at what's going on in our country or in our lives personally, in crisis, we're relying on God's sovereignty. I don't know how this is going to go, but I do know that God's got His mind made up. If He wants David to be king, David's going to be king. He He knows exactly what He's doing in the situation, and God intervenes. And church, that's very comforting to know, isn't it? Whatever kind of crisis, whatever kind of craziness is going on, whatever kind of criticism is being thrown your way, God's on His throne. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. And it's going how he wants it to go. Would you stand with me? Let's pray and let's prepare for communion. Father, as we spend some time with you tonight at your table, remembering Jesus, your broken body, your shed blood, we think of all of the criticism, all of the cursing, the spitting, your beard being ripped out, the shame that you went through and you never lashed back. God, would you meet with us in a fresh way at the communion table tonight? May we be honest with our own struggles, with our own sin, and that's why you died. That's why you rose again. We want to encounter you, receive your forgiveness. Lord, we pray for those that don't know you as their Savior. As they come to contemplate the cross, that you would open up their eyes to see their need for you, to see your love for them. So we give this time to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.